Hello, I'm David Aiken. Welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, March the 11th. On the show this week, Canada dodged a bullet after getting an exemption on new U.S. tariffs. But how long will it last and what will it mean for NAFTA? Then Europe is bracing for the battle with the White House over the tariffs. But what are their plans and will it lead to any new opportunities for Canada? And the Mounties get their woman. Brenda Lucky becomes the first RCMP commissioner who happens to be a female. Will having a woman at the helm help the organization put allegations of harassment and discrimination behind them? But first, President Donald Trump has done it again. He shook up global trade alliances by announcing a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% levy on aluminum. For now, Canada is exempt, but Trump is trying to use the threat of tariffs to squeeze Canada in NAFTA negotiations. We're negotiating right now NAFTA, and we're going to hold off the tariff on those two countries to see whether or not we're able to make the deal on NAFTA. But I have a feeling we're going to make a deal on NAFTA. I've been saying it for a long time. We either make a deal or we terminate. And if we do, there won't be any tariffs on Canada, and there won't be any tariffs on Mexico. Our approach in NAFTA is unchanged. We, st we are our strategy, our approach, our positions are the ones with which we began the negotiation. We are in favor of a modernized agreement. We think a win-win-win outcome for all three countries is absolutely possible. Joining me now is Christopher Sands, director for the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Chris is in Washington this morning. And Chris, thanks so much for being on the program. And you've studied this relationship, the Canada-U.S. relationship for what, 25, 30 years. And I want you to give us your sense of how the Trudeau government has managed Trump and the trade file, uh, given all the events of last week. Well, it's, it's a very tough thing to be judgmental, given that the Trudeau government has been working with a very uh, volatile partner in the U.S. Uh, Donald Trump has been uh, really shaking up the foundations of American foreign policy, partly because he ran as an anti-establishment figure, but he's presented something of a moving target for, for the Trudeau government. And they've worked very hard to try to find that thread of principle or that understanding of, of what Donald Trump is really after. And I think, in general, uh, they've not always figured him out. They seem to be looking for that sort of old-fashioned U.S. establishment Republican voice in the administration. And what we saw this week is those kind of voices are out, with Gary Cohn going back probably to Goldman Sachs, uh, leaving the administration as a senior economic advisor, and voices like Wilbur Ross, uh, Peter Navarro rising in both the president's estimation and in their influence on U.S. policy. I thought one of the remarkable things in the week was, as you may know, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, certainly he had a call to Donald Trump, but he also called the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. He called Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. And for me, that struck me as unique that a Prime Minister makes that contact with congressional leadership. It is really unprecedented, and Trudeau himself had taken time to go brief uh, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, congressman from California, and really tried to cultivate relations with individual members. For most of my recollection, Canadian prime ministers, let alone cabinet ministers, really stayed off Capitol Hill. They focused on the White House, uh, leaving the ambassador to do more of the, uh, the work in Congress. So this is a real shift, and I think it suggests that what's happening increasingly is that for Canada and Mexico, it's not enough to stay outside 
the U.S. political system and, and sort of remain in a sovereign redoubt. You have to roll up your sleeves and play in American politics, which comes with certain risks, risks that Canada gets seen as just another special interest and, and could end up hurting the process. But it's also hard to argue that Canada has any choice. You have to find allies where you can and try to work some sort of coalition in support of Canadian interests inside the U.S. system. I want to try and situate this whole uh, trade file, the tariffs on the steel and aluminum and the NAFTA negotiations, inside U.S. domestic politics. We know that the midterms are coming up in the fall. We've all seen the polls. There's lots of Republicans that are worried about getting reelected. Can we read Trump's sense of urgency to get the NAFTA deal done sometime before those midterms as an imperative for the Republicans to have some success in the fall? Is, is that what Canadians should be aware of, that U.S. domestic political uh, imperative? Um, you know, I think that it's a sort of split thing. The Donald Trump would love to see a deal done as soon as possible because he wants to say that he delivered on his campaign promise to get rid of bad trade deals and come up with good new ones. At the same time, many members of Congress don't want a controversial trade vote right before they have to go up for re-election. I think there are a lot of traditional Republicans who are free traders. They've accepted the idea that uh, reducing barriers is a net positive for the U.S. economy, even though they acknowledge that it leads to winners and losers domestically. Uh, but they don't want to be necessarily taking a vote for any kind of trade agreement before an election. At the same time, I think Donald Trump has tapped into something that the establishment voices here in Washington. Washington, D.C., myself included, really failed to recognize, which is there were a lot of Americans, American voters, who are really not keen on trade liberalization, who are looking for a more uh, assertive economic nationalism out of, the, out of the United States. The last time we had a president who was this kind of an economic nationalist was really the Richard Nixon administration. Uh, and you can see echoes of that administration in this one, not so much on the Watergate front, but just on the, the way in which global economic policy has become much more confrontational than it, it normally is. Now, uh, of course, the tariff story was the big one of the week. Of course, that happened at the end of the week. But at the beginning of the week, we saw the close of the latest round of NAFTA negotiations. They were in Mexico. It was a round that got, I think, five sections, five or six sections closed. That's very productive relative to the other round. So the, the, the NAFTA partners feeling there was some progress there. But then we saw this thing at the end of the week where Trump clearly is trying to tie a NAFTA outcome with this threat of steel tariffs. Uh, we heard at the top of the show Minister Christian Freeland saying, no, no, NAFTA is separate from the tariff issue. Give me your sense on, on how Canada might play this idea that, or, or play against this idea that Trump wants to tie NAFTA to the steel tariffs. Well, it's, it's funny. There are, there's been a lot of writing about whether linkage between issues is good. It's certainly okay for the United States because we have a lot of cards to play, but it's very tricky for Canada because you feel the seesaw effect of being pulled in one direction and then moved on another one. Trump wants to use this leverage to force to encourage, I guess you could say, Canada and Mexico to come to terms on a deal. What the Mexico City round was hoping to achieve was enough agreement that when Donald Trump at the end of the month goes to Congress to say, I need a three-year extension of my negotiating authority under the 2015 legislation that Congress passed to give the president authority to negotiate these trade agreements. It's Obama's authority that, in effect, Trump is using for this negotiation. He wants to be able to say to Congress, I need this extension, but I've made enough progress to justify a little bit more time. And so the U.S. was looking to close as many chapters as possible and make it clear that there was an agreement. At the same time, 
or at least there was an agreement in the offing. At the same time, you started to hear Prime Minister Trudeau saying publicly, I'd rather have no deal than a bad deal. And it looked mm -hmm. like Canada was going to potentially play hard to get. Uh, Mexico, too, was saying, well, you know, we never know what will happen after our election. You, you might have a, a, a different character to deal with in Mexico City who's not as easy to work with. So both Canada and Mexico are pulling back. That's what I think the Trump uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum are about. They're about saying things could get a lot worse for you if you don't go ahead and sign a deal. Remember that withdrawal, the U.S. idea that we could cancel NAFTA by unilateral withdrawal, has largely been debunked as just not possible. Congress never agreed to it. But the steel and, and aluminum tariffs are much more realistic as a threat. So we're returning to the leverage we had at the very beginning where Canada and Mexico feel that their backs are against the wall. Trump likes it that way, and he's looking to use that to push forward a deal and certainly to send the signal to Congress that at the end of the month he needs that extra time, which I expect they'll probably grant. Chris Sands, a Canada-U.S. expert at Johns Hopkins University joining us from Washington. Chris, great to chat with you as always. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Europe was unable to escape the new aluminum and steel tariffs that President Trump announced last week. Now, what will Europe do? There's talk of uh, retaliatory tariffs. And how might this affect the trading relationship between Canada and Europe? Raoul Delcourt is Belgium's ambassador to Canada and joins me now. And I, I guess we want to start with Trump and the tariffs. Welcome to the program. And Thank you very much. Here in the diplomatic community among your European colleagues, surely there must have been people phoning back and forth. W give me your sense of what, what is the, the general reaction to what President Trump has announced at the end of the week? Well, Belgium, like all the other EU countries, is very much in favor of free trade. And therefore, this goes exactly against uh, the values we are defending. Now, you have to give us some time before uh, thinking of uh, any reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, and we did hear from the EU Commission sometime during the, the European Commission sometime during the week threatening some sort of tariffs. But right, but uh, retaliation is not a word we will use uh, quickly. We want to look at this more carefully. But um, the EU Commission has already mentioned three uh, three avenues, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, to react on on this. The first one is to go to the WTO, and uh, there is a a arbitration mechanism that we, we can uh, uh, trigger. The second one is to um, be very careful before uh, taking any um, countervailing measures to make sure to identify, first of all, which countries among the EU are the most impacted. Right. And um, how um, we could eventually uh, uh, kind of um, identify a uh, series of specific, specific measures, and this will, will, take, will take time. The third element I'd like to draw your attention on is that, uh, of course, steel exporters like China will then look more towards the uh, European market. They'll look to a place to sell their, their steel, that's right. Exactly. So we have to uh, think of what kind of measure we can take in order to stabilize our import of, of steel. Um, there are also mechanisms we have to look at. So it's, um, <clears throat> it's indeed something which is upsetting for every European, but we will not uh, react, I believe, before uh, thoroughly examining the situation. We want to talk about the, the Canada-European trade deal, the CETA, as everybody knows it. That is in, uh, there's a provisional agreement, and we're, we're operating as if it's going to pass, but we know it can't get final ratification before the European Court of Justice says that the deal is in 
uh, is compatible with EU law. And it was Belgium that put that matter before the court. Give us a sense of the concern there and, and the state of Belgian politics right now. We know that Bologna, of course, didn't like this deal to begin with. Um, do you sense that we're going to see this thing get through? I want to be very reassuring in that respect. By the way, uh, we have a new government in Wallonia, which has, uh, if I may say so, a uh, more positive approach mm -hmm. about CETA. Uh, secondly, the ratification process in my country has already started, and actually the Flemish parliament has ratified. It's just that in Belgium it's a rather long uh, process going through several parliaments, not one like in Canada, mm -hmm. and therefore it might take time. But uh, the general feeling we have is that we want to ratify, um, say, hopefully uh, within uh, a year uh, or, or so. Um, uh, we are not going to be among the first one. There's already half a dozen EU countries which have ratified. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. But uh, we will follow suit, hopefully. <clears throat> I want to talk about something that's going to be very special for you for the week ahead and for any Belgians here in Canada, and that is a state visit by the king and queen of the Belgians, Queen Mathilde and uh, King Philippe. They're going to be officially welcomed tomorrow mm -hmm. at Rideau mm -hmm. Hall. And one of the interesting things about this is the last time we saw a Belgian king in Canada, it was 1977. A guy named Trudeau was the prime minister then, a guy named Trudeau is the prime minister now. What was it about, could you get a sense of what the, the royal couple, what their interest is in Canada, why they decided to, to honor us with a, a visit? Well, uh, beside the fact that we, of course, uh, <clears throat> have had a very good relationship with the Trudeau family in general, and thank you for alluding to this, but um, there is, of course, a special significance to this uh, visit, which is World War I. I like to remember that, to remind that uh, former Governor General Johnston went to Belgium in 2014 for the commemoration of mm -hmm. uh, the First World War. And somehow, we're at the end now of this uh, commemoration in 2018. This is a return visit. And a, an important element of this visit will actually to pay tribute to the Canadians. Many Belgians, really, uh, fr from a young age, are um, they know about um, what the Canadians, uh, how they uh, supported us during the two world wars. Mm -hmm. And there will be an important event at the War Museum here on Tuesday with veterans, because it's not just about the past, you know. We are fighting together. We, we have shed blood together. In the Balkan, will, yes. in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. in Korea before. The, we are NATO countries. We have, um, so th that's, that's something uh, very much in common between us. And for all the serious and important work, there's going to be some fun stuff. You mentioned a sugar shack trip for the king and queen. Well, yes. Uh, we wanted to have, as we say in French, la couleur locale, mm -hmm. something uh, <coughs> which is very typically Canadian, and I think that is a good choice. With a touch of snow in the back, it would be nice for the photographer. I think <laughs> it's going to be perfect. Well, listen, Ambassador Raoul Delcord, thank you so much for joining us today. All the best wishes for this week. I know it's, you're going to be very, very busy for the next seven days. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. For the first time ever, a woman will be heading up the RCMP. That's big news. Brenda Lucky will be Canada's next RCMP commissioner. And she has her work cut out for her. The force has been plagued by allegations of discrimination and harassment. Will Lucky be the one who turns the tide? Joining me to talk about that and some other national security matters, Greg Fergus, a Liberal MP for just across the river here, uh, Greg. Uh, Hull Aylmer, Indeed. beautiful part of the country, of course. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining it's us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, 
For a feminist government, the Trudeau government, this is uh, this is walking the walk. Uh, in addition to talking the talk, in that uh, it's certainly a qualified candidate. Uh, it's not. It doesn't look at all like an affirmative action sort of appointment. Uh, what, what what can you make of this particular appointment? Well, first of all, I think it's a great appointment. Uh, Brenda Lucky, uh, Assistant Commissioner, 32-year veteran of the force, worked in five provinces around this country, which is great: Quebec, Ontario, the West, all over. She has. Uh, she's worked internationally. She has just. She has great credibility. And the fact that she's a woman is great news, too, mm -hmm. because it—and uh, to be the first uh, female commissioner of the RCMP is historic. But I think most, most importantly, David, it wasn't that she was sought out because she was a woman. She was sought out because she was the most qualified and uh, candidate uh, to be selected as commissioner. And it's great that, in a sense, we're, it's a new age where we can make sure that she doesn't face those systemic barriers mm -hmm. that would have blocked her in the past, perhaps. It's, it's another glass ceiling broken, and you're right, it's, it's broken for all the right reasons. Yep. Let me get your thoughts on this, though, that this is a—we know the problems within the, the culture of some aspects of the RCMP, some regions of the country, et cetera, where some of the guys do not know how to behave towards uh, female suspects, female victims of crime, or female colleagues. Do you think it is going to work to have a woman at the top can change the culture below? Uh, that's clearly is going to be part of her mandate, I'm assuming. Well, David— let me put it to you this way. The RCMP has a storied history. It has a great reputation around the world. When people think of Canada, they often think of the RCMP. Mm -hmm. And we should be very proud of our forces. But like many modern institutions, they've had trouble making the change to a new world. And yes, it's important for uh, uh, Commissioner Lucky to, to make that a key part of her mandate, and it is. But it really requires a full culture change. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's going to take time and that's going to take a lot of effort. And it's not just up to her, it's up to the entire force together. And I'm glad to see that she's already starting off on the right foot and trying to bring about change. And I think it's, you know, a couple of commissions ago, it was the, the, the Harper government took a civilian and put somebody in, and there was a lot of. Uh, difficulties for that civilian. She obviously has a long career in uniform as well. It, this was not a problem, of course, your government inherited this issue of uh, problems within the force. It was existed in the last one, but it's been since July that uh, Paulson resigned. Is this now time, perhaps, for the government to make sure she's got every support she needs and will request? to make these changes? Precisely right. And that was also part of the whole interview process that I know that the shortlisted candidates had gone through by that committee that was set up uh, under the uh, chairmanship of uh, Frank McKenna. Um, it was important for them to make sure that you know, this is part of the new RCMP. This is going to be part of the new uh, uh, attitude that it's going to have to have to make sure that it is policing in a fair and a modern way. And so we make sure we are uh, made resources available to the RCMP, mm -hmm. and I know that uh, those resources will be put to good work under her leadership. I, I wanted to uh, switch gears for a bit and talk about an issue that uh, uh, dominated Parliament just before it rose for this this couple of weeks recess, probably when it comes back, and that is the issue of the, the Prime Minister's trip to India and this particular aspect of of it. We've watched the Prime Minister in the House defend senior bureaucrats, senior government officials uh, who have provided some advice to the Prime Minister about how this guy Jaspal Atwal ended up in India. That senior government official has told us, told other reporters, that the Indian government or a faction may have had a hand in getting Atwal to India. Atwal last week said in a news conference, India had nothing to do with it. I asked, the, I wonder if there's a problem here in that do we have an issue with the credibility of our national security establishment, which our new commissioner is about to join. How do we solve this problem, where the prime minister is definitely trying to defend his officials? Should it be a time, do you think, that maybe his officials did have a briefing with parliamentarians at some point? 
Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of this case, but I could just say this, is that we do have uh, women and men of top-flight mm -hmm. minds, top-flight quality, who provide uh, all of government uh, the best kind of advice that they can have. And uh, certainly the Prime Minister is right to stand behind the officials uh, and stand behind our national security apparatus. And they are always seeking ways, I'm certain, they look at every situation, they review their actions in the past, make some changes and modifications, they're always looking for that. And, and yet, though, I mean, that's a laudable thing for the PM, any PM, to yeah. stand behind the senior officials. But in this case, what that senior official has communicated to reporters, and nobody's challenged the veracity of the, what we've reported on, has caused a problem with the chief ally. Can't, India had to issue a statement saying, what's going on in the House of Commons that the Prime Minister of Canada is saying doesn't make sense. And the, sorry, it's, it's, so, so the question is, <laughs> you've got a choice here. You've got Canada-India relations, or you've got this this idea of standing behind your bureaucracy. Something's there needs well, to be, there's a problem there that needs to be solved. Well, I'm certain they're, they're they're working on that right now and trying to review their their information and their intelligence and making sure that we always get the best kind of information possible. It, just quickly, there was a big uh, guns and gang violence summit. That was a great summit. Next steps. There's a lot of frustration out there for this uh, to get something done on this particular file. Well, you know, it was a, it was a great conference. I was there, David, and it was uh, just amazing to have 200 people from across the country to get together to take a look at this issue because the face of crime has changed. In Canada, yes, the overall level has decreased. Over, I mean, we've never lived in safer times overall. But with regards to crime involving uh, guns and gangs. Over the last four years, we've seen a doubling mm -hmm. of, of homicides uh, with, with the use of guns, especially uh, gang-related deaths. And it was great to take a look at that. We just can't, you know, lock them up and throw away the key to try to deal with the problem. We have to take a look at a holistic approach from social policy, from different, giving p young people different options, trying to create a different environment. So it was great to speak to not only the provincial governments, uh, but to speak to the police forces, speak to social groups, to speak to a whole bunch of other workers who really want to make a difference. All right, Greg Fergus from Hall Elmer, thank you so much for joining it's a pleasure us. Pleasure to be here. I'm David Aiken. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.